All right, we're in Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our series through this great letter of Paul to the church of Colossae. And we come to what can only be described as an Everest in the mountain range of God's truth this morning. A passage of scripture that, um, man, all, I guess all scripture deserves fear and quaking since it's God's word, but this one this one feels extra holy. That's not theologically correct. But this one captures the imagination. And it was a significant note and is the core and heart of this book. Everything else from the rest of Colossians will flow out of what is said in these eight verses as implications of these eight verses. Colossians chapter 1, we'll read beginning in verse 15 through verse 23. Hear God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Amen. Uh, my, the, the guy who I, who's preaching, I sat under my freshman year of college. I went to Covenant College, which is at the top of Lookout Mountain, and there is a church up there, a beautiful church with... Gothic architecture, where I spent my freshman year listening to the preaching of Joe Novenson. And I, I, from that time, I remembered from stashing away little illustrations from him, this one from his time, in which Joe Novenson gave the illustration from his high school days. He grew up and was born and raised just outside Philadelphia, where he talked about his high school. And he says there were three things in his high school that enabled you to be supreme, and the culture and the society of the, the social network of his high school. One was you had to have athletic ability. If you had athletic ability, you could be supreme. Or two, you had an unusual or unique talent that rose you above other people. Or three, you had the ability to beat someone up. <laughs> these three things, one, if you had one of these, you could reign, have some fraction of supremacy in the high school. And he said, into this context came an underclassman from another country, from the Pacific Rim country. His name was Kyoto Wada. And this young man stood no more than five foot two inches. He took tiny little steps and wore tiny little shoes. And his shoes had bells on the end of them. 
Not even the girls, he said, had bells on their shoes, but Kyoto Wada did. Because of his manner and his inability to speak the English language with any kind of fluency, and apparently he had no athletic ability to speak of and no unique talent necessary, and he didn't seem like he had the stature to beat up anybody, there was nothing, anything about him to make him supreme or preeminent in the school. So he was either mocked or simply ignored. Until the day of the high school talent show. And on that day, everything passed. The curtains passed, and standing in the middle of the stage was little Kyoto Wada, bare from chest up, black belted and white panted from the waist down. He had pec muscles that looked like planters outside windows. He had a six-pack, and there from a dead stop, he jumped five feet into the air and went through a kata, in which he went through what it would look like to defend oncoming attackers in the midst of a fight. In the matter of the next three to five minutes, Joe Novenson said, the social balance in his high school was flipped upside down. <laughs> he was supreme. Suddenly in front of them was a man who had athletic ability that rivaled anybody else in the school. He had a unique talent that no one could match, and most certainly he could beat up anybody in this high school. <laughs> and he said that day, with that display of little Kyoto Wada's greatness, everything in their behavior regards to him changed. Knowing a person changes you. And you don't have to do anything about it. It just happens. This is the logic of Paul in this passage. That when you come face to face and you come in the midst of something that is mind-altering, earth-shattering great, you change. And you don't have to do anything about it. It just happens. It adjusts your life completely. Paul has been sharing with us here at the Church, this prayer, prayer for hope for the people of Colossae, for the church there. And he's praying for them that they would know the hope of the power. And this is what he's saying. He's, he's in the middle of a prayer, praying that they would know the power of God and knowing how great God is, and that would give them hope for how they live their life. And then suddenly in the midst of this prayer, it appears that Paul stops and enters into a song. You've heard of spoken word? That's essentially what Paul enters into. It's like he is praying one moment and then he steps to the side of the stage and he's doing this right here. There is a poetic form to verses 15 through 23 in which he essentially breaks from prayer into a song of worship of how great God is. There is a great order and form to what he does here and what he says here, and we can't dive into that necessarily this morning, but there are two great sections to this that reveal Christ's supremacy and his greatness over all things. The first, it gives us the realm, the fact that Christ is supreme over all creation. And then he switches about halfway through and shows how Christ is also supreme over recreation. The realm of creation and the realm of recreation. And there are four main themes, including those that I just mentioned. Four main themes that come to the forefront in this passage. Now, let me just walk through them really quickly. Jesus is supreme because he is God. Jesus is supreme because he is over all things. Jesus is supreme because he is supreme in recreation. And finally, he is supreme and sufficient because he is the great reconciler. 
These are the four points that we're going to walk through these next two weeks. We're going to hit the first two this morning and address the last two next week. This is the display of the supremacy of your Christ in God's words. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is a passage that surpasses us, that begins to usher in and tap into the transcendence of divinity. And therefore, I and the people that listen, we are inept. And therefore, God, I ask for your Holy Spirit to both speak through me, to speak to the hearts of individuals, to take the transcendent God and make him imminent to our hearts this morning. May the greatness of who you are become real and vibrant and alive in this place in our very lives. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. First point is this. Christ is supreme because he is God. Jesus is supreme because he is God. Three things that are stated in this passage that reveal this. First statement is this. It begins right there in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. By the way, the antecedent of he is going back to a couple of verses before when it says the God the Father has raised up this one, the beloved Son who redeems us. And it's Jesus, the beloved Son, who is the image of the invisible God. Now, it's important to know here really quickly, we don't think about it very often, but God is invisible. God is a spirit, in fact. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. Romans 1.20 says that God has invisible attributes that are then made known through creation. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it says that God lives in unapproachable light and no one has seen him or can see him. This is God. But this invisible God makes himself visible. He reveals himself in a number of different ways. God reveals himself first through creation. Then he reveals himself in, through, God's, through his law. He reveals himself through his word. But the high point of God's revelation in this world, the main way in which he has made the invisible God visible is through his son, Jesus. This is what he came to do. To reveal to us the full extent of the glory of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. If you want to see God, you've got to see Jesus. This is what Jesus himself says to one of his own apostles, Philip. In John 14, verses 8 and 9, Jesus has this exchange and it goes this way. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that is enough for us. And Jesus, you can almost sense his exasperation, says in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to make known to us what God looks like, what his moral attributes are like. There's a great story of a kindergarten teacher who walks around. She's in her class, and all her children, are, as they're apt to do in a kindergarten class, are, are coloring. They're tad their crayons out, and she's wandering around, talking to each kid about their various coloring in their, the pictures that they're drawing there. And she comes up to a one particular little boy, this little boy with a shock of blonde hair, and he's furiously, very intently working on his picture. And she asks him, what are you drawing? And very flatly, very matter-of-factly, without looking up, he says, God. Her response was, God? Don't you know that no one has ever seen God? We don't know what God looks like. And the little boy's response, again, very flatly and very quickly, was, they will when I'm done. <laughs> That's what the incarnation is, 
folks. No one has seen God. You can't know what he looks like. But in the incarnation, in the life and death and resurrection, in the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne, it's God saying, when I'm finished, you're going to know what I look like. That's what it's all about. And so he says, I come to be the image of the invisible, invisible gods. Does that mean that Jesus is merely a picture? Is he merely simply like, you know, the cheap paintings you can get of the Mona Lisa? Just a knockoff? No, he is the exact representation. In Colossians 1.15, that Greek word for image is icon. He is the image, the icon of God the Father. And he is the, he says later in other places, he is the exact representation. It says he is the son. So it's talked about someone as the, a representation that we, or someone being like someone else. We normally, in our in the way we talk about that, is it's, it's some moderate form of similarity, but not with Jesus to God the Father. He is the exact representation. There, it, the character of God is the character of Jesus. The attributes of God the Father are the attributes of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can say, like you say, we, when, I, when we were in Brookhaven, when, when Lala was really little, before she kind of grew hair, you know, with little girls, you can kind of sh- see the shape of their face a little bit more. And, and so now she looks so much like her mama, don't you? And you're, that's a good thing. But when Lala was little, and we would have her in a dress, we'd be taken to the church, she had this shocking resemblance to somebody else in her family. And we would show up to church, and the ladies of the church, and they'd be like, look, it's Andrew in a dress. He would say, she's the spitting image of her father. Jesus, it's not too reverent to say, Jesus is the spitting image of his father in every way. But not in simply physical manifestations, but in the fullness of his moral character and all of his power and in all of his glory. This is who Jesus is. Therefore, we say, when you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. Because he is God. Then let me address the next phrase that causes some significant confusion in this passage and has spawned significant occults in the life and history of Christianity. The second phrase is this, the firstborn of all creation. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses, and this is the main passage that they would point to, to point out, they would say, look, Jesus is the firstborn. It means he is the first thing that is created. And that's nice that Jesus is the first thing created, but he is not God. He is simply the first of all created beings. Arius, this is one of the first and major uh, criticisms and heresies in the early church in the 4th century in which Arius and Augustine went toe-to-toe on this issue that he believed that there was a time in which Jesus was not. At the very least, he is a lesser God. This is the belief, and this has infiltrated itself in various ways throughout church history. So how did Augustine, how should we respond to our Jehovah's Witnesses' brother when they come knocking on our door and we run into them on the square? How do we respond to this claim that Jesus, when it says here that he is the firstborn, that that means he's created? What I would say is, well, brothers, Jehovah's Witness brothers, you've got to keep reading. For the rest of the verses clarify what firstborn means, and you also need to keep studying Because firstborn doesn't mean what you think it means. Because when we're talking about deity giving birth, that means something different than necessarily you and I giving birth. And the way the word firstborn is used throughout Scripture is not necessarily used in the way that we necessarily use it. There's two ways in which firstborn is used. First, in the normal way in which we use it, which is in the temporal meaning. And that a child, a firstborn child, would be literally and temporally born before the other children in the family. 
In time, he came first. But firstborn also would indicate in the scriptures priority and ranking. It denoted a special connection in relationship to the father. Therefore, you actually could be not the firstborn, but be considered the firstborn because of the special relationship that you had to the father. This is actually the way that God speaks of David in Psalm 89, 27. And it says there, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. What it's referring to there is that word firstborn refers to the fact that he is above He is preeminent. He is first in power and ranking. And the people who are reading this in ancient Near Eastern culture, that those who read this and heard Paul talk about this would have what's called the law of primogeniture going on in their minds. That both the temporal aspect, but also this connection of ranking. That if you were born first, what they believe is the firstborn son got the highest attributes of the parents. He was actually the exact representation of the best of both the parents, in particular the father. And so the firstborn son would get all the wealth and all the standing and all the power in the family. To say in this context that Jesus is the firstborn of God the Father is to say that Jesus is absolutely equal with the father in every way, shape, and form. So we have to look at what firstborn actually means, but then we also have to look at the context as it further explains what's going on here. It goes on, if we keep reading, the context reveals that the title cannot refer to Kim as simply being the first of all created things. Since immediately what follows is a commentary in that it says this, that he created all things. You cannot be a part of all created things and create all things. Jesus is first, he is the son of God, and he creates everything that is. He didn't create himself, he always was. So the context reveals that he is the fullness of God. The fullness of God, it goes on to say. That's the third thing we need to look at here. So he's the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn son of God, and he's also the fullness of God, it says. In verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And here it's talking about the fact that God became man. This is the reality of the incarnation. That a man, in a man, dwelled the incarnate deity. The one who had all the attributes of God. The word fullness, as one commentator puts it, points to the fact that all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his glory, are perfectly displayed in this man known as Jesus. In Colossians 2.9, Paul further makes this clear again when he reiterates that the fullness of deity, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When Jesus is beheld, you behold the full manifestation of God, not some part of it. Not just some aspect of it, but the fullness of God. There was not a moment from the time in which Jesus, the physical man Jesus, was conceived in Mary's womb in which he was not also God incarnate. The God who reigns over all things. So he was pleased to dwell in him. Now, what I also want you to see here and look at is that word pleased, because this is important for us. It pleased God. This is unbelievable. It pleased God to take on humanity. It pleased God to put the fullness of his attributes in a man, Jesus. 
It is God's pleasure, this means, to reveal himself. He is a relational God. From the beginning, God has revealed himself to his people. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And from the moment they rejected him and separated themselves from God and were forced to leave the garden, God's desire is that we would be back in relationship with him and would know him. This is a relational God. And it gives him pleasure for you to know him. It gives him joy. This is, I've been thinking about this this week. Is our, our youngest, Andrew, has been begin, he's started to crawl everywhere. He looks like the little baby from Simpsons. I mean, he just like, looks like he's floating on the ground. He's so fast. And he just follows us around the house constantly with his crawling. And so we had this wonderful game, this kind of hide-and-go-seek game, in which what I'll do is I'll, I'll run behind it. I'll say, Drew, follow me. I'll run behind a corner. And I'll say, Drew. And he'll, I'll hear him. Boom, 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 boom. And then I jump out, and I look at him, and I say, hey. And he peers up, and what does he do? He breaks into a smile. Now, he's happy, but I love playing this game. I'm, I get out of the shower. I'm half-dressed. I'm supposed to get to work, and I'm like, i got to play for five minutes. <laughs> because it gives me pleasure as a follower to reveal myself to my son and to see the pleasure that is on his face. This is why Jesus came. To reveal the beauty of God to you. And so that you might enjoy him and he might enjoy your pleasure in him. Now, the fact that Jesus is the supreme one because he is God, he reveals the fullness of God in this world, this has significant implications. Two, I want to give you right off the bat, two applications or implications, and that's this. These are, this is an exclusive claim that Jesus is making here. Narrows the focus. And here's what I mean. The first implication is this, is to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God is to say that we can only know God through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He is it. Period. John 14, 6 says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why should Jesus be supreme in your life? Because he is God, and he is the way to know God. You want to know God? Many of you are seeking to know God in a bunch of different ways. And the world has created a thousand different directions to try to know God. This is the great longing of the human heart. God's great longing after Adam and Eve was to be back in relationship with us, and frankly, Frankly, it's our great longing too. But the only way that will happen is if you know Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot know the Father except through him. So that's one implication. There is an exclusivity that is being communicated here. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He has to be preeminent in your life because there is no life after death. There is no relationship with God unless he is there. Second, but this also says the fact that Christ is preeminent and he's God is that we can only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. This is interesting. Blaise Pascal said this, that not only do we know God through Jesus Christ, but we know ourselves through Jesus Christ. John Calvin put it this way at the beginning of his theological magnum opus known as the Institute, said this, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts. First, knowledge of God, and second, a knowledge of ourselves. 
The revelation of Christ reveals who you are. And it does so in two different ways. First, it reveals how much you have fallen short in your image bearing. We are a fallen people. And when you see one who perfectly images God, we see how, how much we don't. We were made to be image bearers, and yet we have become morally bankrupt. So we no longer image God, and therefore it tells us who we are in our fallen state, that when you see Jesus, you see the exact opposite of you in so many ways. That he is beautiful in his character and his goodness, and we are not. But the flip side, it also says this, it reveals the fullness of the glory for which we were made. You were made to look like Jesus. He is, there is a way in which we are not because he is deity. But he in human flesh, in human form, reveals to us what our life ought to look like if we are perfectly reflecting God the Father, who we were made to image. Genesis 1 says we are made in the image of God. And we've become tainted, but we need a new vision. And Jesus is that vision. He is the vision of knowing what your life is to look like, what it is to display the image of God in this world. Boston College philosophy professor Peter Christ says this, the difference between us and Jesus. He says, we are half men. He is perfect man. We are inhuman humans. He is perfect humanity. He is more us than we are. Do you understand? He became a human. The perfect human. The fullest expression of what a human is supposed to be. Now, do you see the all-encompassing focus this ought to give to your life? This means this, to know God, to know yourself and your brokenness and sinfulness, but to know yourself as you are clearly made to be, you must first behold the beauty of Jesus. This has to be the center mission of your life, to know Jesus in all of his glory, to value him, any hope of a sense of self, any hope of knowing God, any hope of change in your life, begins with this, to behold the visible God, Jesus himself. We sang it this morning, right? Be thou my vision. Be thou my vision. That's where it has to begin. That's the first way in which Jesus is supreme. He is supreme because you must have him. Second, Christ is supreme because he is over all creation, over all things in creation. We see that Christ's supremacy over creation is displayed in this passage in three ways. Christ's supremacy over creation is displayed first because he is the originator of creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. I don't know that there's anything here that needs to be explained, right? The claim is clear. He created all things. The only thing I want to elaborate on is simply the scope. All things means just spiritual things, just physical things. No, all things. It goes on in great detail. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible, rulers and authorities, thrones and dominions, he created them all. Therefore, there is nothing we can look to and say that is not good in some sense. Everything we can look to and say it is broken But everything, sexuality, race, your personality, all cultures, there is some reflection 
the fact that God created them. They are distorted and they are broken. But God is the originator and creator. So all things were created by Christ. But why do they exist? This text also tells us, though, that Jesus is supreme over creation, not only because he creates us, but because he gives creation its purpose. Jesus is supreme over creation because he is the definer of creation. The definer. Verse 16c, about the last line there in verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. We exist for Christ. We exist for his glory. This is the purpose of man, mankind, and all creation to glorify their creator. This means this, that nothing Nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. John Piper says this to display this, this point. He says this, Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the beautiful, most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked genocidal dictator, everything that exists exists to make the greatness of God more fully known, including you and the person that you most hate. That's why we exist. Is this how you are living? Is this how you're living, man? I'll tell you what, we are unburdened people because I think so often we jump out of bed and we're living for something else. Is this the all-encompassing, overriding, pervasive purpose and vision of your life to live for Christ's glory, for the glory of God the Father, to reflect him and be an image bearer of Christ and his Father in this world? The reason why so many of us are in agony is because we are living for something else we are living for ourselves. Paul David Tripp, this morning in our, in our uh, parent discipleship time, we were watching a video, and he said this, that one of the greatest needs that our children need to know is that they are not in the center of the universe, but God is. But the most damaging thing to our children is to think that they are in the center of it all. And the most damaging thing to your life is to think that you are at the center and God revolves around you. It's why Copernicus was so important, right? The old view of man, that the sun revolves around the earth. No, no, no. Man's world revolves around God. This is displayed in the story of Harold Abrams from Chariots of Fire. You know him? Eric Little and Harold Abrams. We know the music, right? He's fast. Harold Abrams was a Cambridge man. He was smart. He was the fastest man alive, pretty much, but he was haunted by insecurity. You see, he was a Jew. That's never been a good thing in history, almost. He was haunted by the burden to justify his existence through his running. For him, running was a matter of life and death. He says this to his friend right before he ran the 100 meters. After training pretty much his whole life, he says to his friend, Aubrey, I'm scared. I have labored for this day, day in and day out, in all kinds of weather. I am a madman. And now, in an hour's time, I will be out there. I will raise my eyes and look down the quarter, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. He said, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm too frightened to win. That's to live a life of enslavement, isn't it? But here's what is liberty and what is exhilarating is you don't have to justify your existence in this world. 
For some of you, you've looked to your beauty to justify your existence. You've looked to your ability to reproduce children, to get married, to be successful in your job, to say, this is why I'm here. Okay, it's, it's worthwhile for me to be here. No, no. From the second you were formed in your mother's womb, your presence in this world was justified by the creator of all things. He said you were made for me. Listen to no other voices but mine. And if you realize this perspective, it will flip your life upside down. You are never qualified. You're never qualified for any other purpose in life. You see, you are made for a greater purpose than all the other things that you're living for. I have a friend recently who has a philosophy degree, a master's in philosophy. And he spent the last five months just trying to get a job, which is consistent with getting a master's in philosophy, right? (laughs) But he can't even get the most mundane jobs. You know why? Because he's overqualified. And the reality is this, is that so many of you are working and living in jobs, living for a purpose that is beneath you. It's beneath what God created you for. Remember the movie Goodwill Hunting near the end? Goodwill Will Hunting is this brilliant genius. He's like the smartest man on earth. He is baffling MIT professors with his knowledge and ability in the mathematical world. And yet, because of abuse and damage in his life, he is just happy to go hang out with his redneck friends doing demolition work. But one day near the end of the movie, his best friend looks at him and says... I plead every day when I come to pick you up. I wish that you would not come out the door and that you would have gone and lived the purpose for which you were made. This this is you. So many of you are living for a smaller purpose than the way God has created you. And so would you understand this? Would you understand that God has made you for the purpose of his glory and his name? Would you wake up every day and do everything for that purpose? Would you enter in and begin to understand your aspect and your part of the story with the way God has gifted you and shaped you and created you? Another Robin Williams movie. It's odd. Since he took his life, he was in such, he was in so many movies in which he was tapping into transcendent truth. But as Professor Keating, he said this in the Dead Poet Society to his students, you are part of the cosmic drama and every life has its own verse to add. What will your verse be? You are all participating in the choir of heaven, singing notes of worship to God. What is your verse? Some of you are singing dissonant notes, though. Rick Warren comes under a lot of scrutiny from our crowd, but he's got a lot of good things to say. His book, Purpose Driven Life, it began with Colossians 1.16. He says this, the purpose of your life is far greater than you ever imagined. Parents, would you give your children this vision for their life? It is, would you install and connect? This is what biblical worldview is. It is not simply we don't, we were not made from monkeys. That is, that is, that is a problem we got to get over. But it is this. It is that you were made, and the reason why you're not trash, the reason why you just didn't come from some little cell is that God created you for an infinite, incredible purpose. This is the high point of biblical worldview. This is the Christian's overarching thoughts. This is the joy of his heart, and it's the joy of God when he begins to see us pleasure 
and who he is and live for him. So he's supreme because he's the creator, because he's the definer, he gives us purpose. But he's also supreme over creation because he is the sustainer of creation. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Some translations render this older translation, in him all things cohere, or in him all things subsist. The point being, whatever coherence or unity is ever displayed in the universe is due to the continual exertion of the divine power of God. It is not a mistake. And the most atheistic scientists keep bumping up against this. This is what Hume and, and Russell Bertrand kept running into. Is they go, this is a problem for the atheist worldview. The order, the fact that the universe stays together. Any physicist can tell you that the universe stays together even as it's expanding. What holds it all together is what? Gravity. What this passage is saying is that Jesus is the spiritual gravity that holds the universe together. He is the cosmic glue of all things. Because Christ holds all things, one pastor says, together the world is a cosmos and not simply a chaos. But what difference does that make? Makes significant difference. To live in a world in a paradigm in which God is holding all things together versus saying they could all just fall apart any seconds. This has been true throughout human history. Actually, in deep Old Testament studies during the Abrahamic time, from the years kind of 2000 to 1500 BC, pagan, the pagan world, scholars describe that time period in the pagan world as there was overtones of anxiety throughout the writings. That it was clear. The, 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 the primary kind of concern was that everyone was concerned and anxious over what was going to happen in the world. And it was because of their theology. You see, what they believed in that time is all nations had different kinds of gods who had different realms. And no one is in control of anything. There was high gods and low gods and gods for the rivers and gods for the, the clouds and gods for the sun. But no one had absolute control over all things. And therefore, chaos could ensue at any time. Destruction could ensue at any time. For example, in the Mesopotamian flood story, yes, there are other flood stories. Don't be concerned about it. It actually proves that it actually happened. That other cultures are trying to explain, hey, this, this, what, what? There's all these evidences of a flood. The gods, though, in the Mesopotamian flood story, the majority of them, what they decide because they don't, they dislike mankind, is they decide to destroy mankind. But what happens is essentially after they've let loose the floods, the gods started to freak out. They began terror-strucken. Because what happens is once they start the floods, they realize they don't have the power to stop it. They aren't in control of everything. They unleash them, but don't have the power to bring them and rein them back in in such a way that one, one passage talks about the gods being frightened as dogs in a corner. The god Ishtar was said to have screamed out like a woman in childbirth. Why? Because he couldn't control the chaos. And because of this theological belief, the whole mindset of humankind during that season was anxiety adult. Now, that makes sense, right? Those pagan people who worshipped all these different deities. May I suggest to you that anxiety and stress is the most pervasive thing in our culture, and it's killing us. Peter Moore describes a garden at Yale University. It's a sunken garden. Here's the thoughts of mankind. Great place of learning. 
And at this, this garden, the sunken garden is supposed to represent the universe. And there in crisscross lines, it's showing the connection between the four corners of the universe. And the various corners, at one corner there's a pyramid, and that pyramid represents time. And another corner of this garden is a circle, and that represents energy. But in one corner there is a massive dice. And it is up on one of its very corners. Representing What? chance we can understand our science we can understand time and we can understand energy we can understand all these things but what they admit there is that there's this chance aspect to the whole equation and is this perspective that is driving our mindset and our worldview crazy the anxiety and stress of living in a worldview paradigm that everything is a chance is squeezing the life out of us like a Boeing constrictor does to its prey. We are the most stressed out, drug-addled society that the world has ever known. Even Christians, we say we believe that God is control of all things, but we have significant issues with control, don't we? Proving that we don't trust God, we want to control our spouses and our environment, and our children, because the truth that God sustains all things has not come home to roost in our hearts, and therefore our functional belief is that God takes care of some things, but we got to take care of a lot of other things. This is a lordship issue. The prodigal, the world around us, outside the church, maybe just says, there is no God, and therefore I have to control my life, and I can do whatever I want with it. But the older brother, the religious person, which is most of us in the room, acknowledge that there is a God, but he, that he is Lord, of our lives, but we don't actually trust him as lords. We don't trust him to control every aspect. And in fact, we don't even trust him with our salvation. That's why we have to do something as a part of our salvation. But the truth of it is in him all things hold together. Christ is the glue. And therefore it says this in Acts 17, 28, in him all we live and move and have our being. Every second of every day, every hair on your head, every breath that you take is held together by God. Your life is held together, your marriage, your family, and yes, this church is held together by the sustaining power of Christ Jesus. Let's come to a conclusion this morning. Let me put these two main points together. There is one who creates. He is supreme as creator over all things. And this second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, becomes man. He is God. He took on flesh. He became a baby. Now this is what is so earth-shattering when you bring these two concepts together. That we think of Jesus as the crucified man and the teacher and as the healer, which can see, but we fail to often conceive of him as the infant who holds the power of the world in his hands. You ever seen a child nurse at his mother's breast. So they become aware, what's one of the things that they do a couple months in, is they begin to reach for their mother's mouth, stick their finger up. This means this. <laughs> this means that when Jesus was at his mother's breast, the same finger that reached to his mother's lips is the same finger that holds all the world together. And not only did he come to live in bodily form, but the powerful God became a child and an infant. And yet even in that lowly estate, 
All things were held together by him. Later on in his life, he climbed up on a cross. And the crazy truth of the gospel is not that he lost control of all things in that broken estate. But it's through his brokenness, through his humility, that he actually was able to hold all things together. There is a beautiful and incredible juxtaposition of images in New York City. At the Rockefeller Center, outside the Rockefeller Center, there is a picture or a, 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 a model of Atlas, the great Atlas, the Titan God, holding up the world. And he's like this, arms outstretched. But he's not like the old pictures of the Greek God who are seen to be bared low under the weight of the world. This is a man who is ripped. And he looks like he's about to hurl the world. This represents the strength of American society, the power of man, the greatness of industry that we have created. This is how we think the world is sustained, through the power of man. But across the street, on Good Fridays, the door of St. Patrick's great cathedral is opened up. And from the point where you can see Atlas, you can look across the street, and you can see real power, because through the door, you can see all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. The sustaining power of this world was brought together through the cross and this is what he did. Jesus, when he got up on that cross, do you understand, just like Atlas has his arms outstretched like this, Jesus had his arms outstretched like this. And through doing so, he upheld the world in weakness, in brokenness. This means this, that you have nothing to fear. Nothing when your world feels like it is going to break apart, maybe it's breaking apart this week. When you don't get the job that you longed for, when you lose the job, when the wife, the spouse, the husband walks out the door, when a spouse or child dies, you can say this, he holds my life together and he sustains me. And you can know it because he did so even from a cross. And in fact, through a cross. And when you and I sin, we know he's there in our suffering. We're okay with that. But when we sin, what, what happens when you sin if that big sin? I mean, the sin that brings shame down on your head and on your family. The shame that seems to, it feels like it's going to crush you. Can that tear you apart? Can that separate you? No. Because on the cross, what Jesus is doing there is it's going to talk about, we're going to look at this more next week, is Jesus, in one hand, in the person of Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully man, and he is bringing together in one hand broken humanity, and on the other, the holy, perfect, glorious, triune God, and pulling them together and reconciling themselves. So that this, in Romans 8 it says, there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate you from the God, love of God in Christ. You have nothing to fear. So Paul says it, our kids are memorizing this in Sunday school, Psalm 46. Though the mountains give way and the earth, or the earth shake and the seas foam, we will not fear. Would you rest in him this morning in the supremacy and beauty of who he is? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you did not stay in heaven, that once you kicked us out of the garden, you pursued us through your law, through your word, but most perfectly through your son who became man. God, this truth and these truths that we've talked about today are too much for us. But Lord, I pray that the, the weight of them, the enormity and the significance of them would force us to our knees, would force us to spending time with you until we get a foretaste, a sense, a touch of the greatness of who you are. And it's simply like Moses who simply saw the back shadow of who you are. It, it shattered him, but made him glorious that you would do the same thing for us. That merely giving a touch, a sense, a taste <coughs> of your grandeur would radically change every man, woman, and child in this womb, room for the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen.